and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to Ashok Kumar, Senior Lecturer of Political Economy at Birkbeck and author of Monopsony Capitalism, Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age. We discuss how global value chains have been reshaped under monopsony capitalism, how these changes have affected the power of workers all over the world, and how the COVID-19 pandemic will impact these trends. Thank you, as always, to our amazing patrons who make the show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers who have let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is Ashok Kumar to tell us what monopsony capitalism really is. Hello, Ashok Kumar, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you doing? Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, So we are going to talk today about your book, Monopsony Capitalism, Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age, which I loved um, and I would really recommend to all our listeners, and which recently I think won an award, right? What was the award? Yeah, it uh, it won the Paul Sweezy Marxist Book of the year from the American Sociological Association, which I was, I mean, I was very happy about, particularly because obviously winning an awards feels very validating. And you're like, you know, in academic publishing, you're like, <laughs> you know, we're not like, it's not flying off the shelves. So the only way to feel validated is like <laughs> your friends being like, I read this book, well done, or people winning an award. Uh, the second reason is um, because it is, Marxist sociology is not, is interested obviously in theory, but also very much kind of building theory out of, of, of empirical work, which is, I think, very much in the kind of Marxist political mm. economy tradition. So that's, I mean, it's that's the other reason why it's doubly validating. So I'm just going to start by asking you a very simple question, which is what is monopsony, uh, which is because it's a word that maybe our listeners might not be familiar with. And what do you define monopsony capitalism as? So people know what monopoly is. Typically, monopoly is a large firm, and it's usually a production side firm. And usually it's monopoly is a relationship that's kind of, you could say, a horizontal relationship in the sense that it's firms that are competing with firms that are producing, say, the same commodity. Let's just use that as an example. Obviously, it means more than that. But for simplistic sake, let's say there's three shoe producers and they're producing 30%, 30%, 30% of the market. One takes over the other one, acquires the other one. And so they have 60% kind of degree of monopoly power, right? That's what a monopoly is. A monopsony is rather than a horizontal relationship, it's a vertical relationship, meaning you have in terms of supply chains, lots of sellers and few buyers. So it's kind of a buyer's market. So in terms of its application to contemporary capitalism, it's that under system of kind of globalization or globalized capitalism, you have large buyers like and brands, especially in labor intensive production, like shoes and, and clothes and other things, or even, you know, retailers like Walmart and others who can choose from tens of thousands of potential producers who are competing against each other. So that gives these buyers, global buyers, who may not own really any of the production process, often don't, an enormous amount of power over the supply chain, which they can then use 
to push down the price of a particular good. So let's say I'm using the shoe example, they can purchase that shoe for less and less, which means that means that, you know, there's smaller and smaller margins for those firms, which means they're cranking and turning the screws on workers, who workers who are making, you know, less and less being work, worked harder and harder, and also who have very little bargaining power, right? If you're working in, you know, radicals will say, don't, you know, kind of, this is from 69, you know, demand the impossible or whatever. You can't actually, if you're at a workplace, unless we're in a kind of revolutionary moment, you're not able to make outlandish demands. You can make demands on what's available under capitalism. You know, you can't. And so if there's firms that aren't making enormous profits and have very small margins, those workers have very little bargaining power. And if they do make demands and, and the price of that product goes up, you know, Walmart or Nike or Adidas just simply stop contracting with that or buying from that firm, which and that firm goes out of business. And that's why you've seen really the durability of the sweatshop. There is a particular set of reasons why under our current system, you've had, you know, sweatshops remain fairly, I mean, with few exceptions, fairly consistently part of these sectors since their foundation for over 100 years. So, you know, you know, the book kind of starts at Dhaka, uh, Bangladesh uh, in 2013. I'll just say this, that where, you know, 100, uh, 1,129, mostly women were crushed to death in one of the worst industrial accidents in history. And that it was, you know, many people were shocked by that. They said, oh, my God, we've made so much progress. How is this possible? Well, it's because of this structure. It's because of, uh, of, of monopsony capitalism. Um, so can you talk a little bit about Marx's theory of centralization and why this drives monopsony in your model? Um, and I just suggest to listeners that if they're not familiar with some of this terminology, to go back and listen to our episode with Hadas Thier, who talks at length about what this thing centralization means and uh, goes in kind of in depth to give a good introduction to Marx's political economy. Uh, but Ashok, I kind of want to hear about how this theory of centralization links with monopsony specifically. With Marx, there's a kind of underlying law of competition, and that law of competition moves capitalism in a certain direction, and that direction is in the direction of monopoly or centralization. And it's so he says there's you know there's there's this tendency or this this direction of travel due to this force of competition. Now, if you look at the question of mon- of monopsony, what you've seen is that this concentration in these sectors, right? These areas, these sectors where you've seen large degree of exploitation. You've seen conditions getting worse and worse, really from, say, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It is this centralization at the point of uh, consumption. So, you know, you know, saying this division between buyers and producers. So producers are across the world, they're manufacturers, whereas buyers are typically, they're headquartered in the global north, and they are where, you know, the greatest amount of value is captured, right, in the production process. And because of this underlying kind of tendency or uh, law of competition, you've seen these buyers getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And as they've gotten bigger, so for example, uh, just as an example, using again, the footwear example is that, you know, uh, Nike and Adidas have about 60% of the global sports and casual shoe market. That's all of their subsidiaries as well. And that's grown. And as that grows, what you've seen is that 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 resulted in increased downward pressure. They're putting increased downward pressure on the suppliers. So there were mechanisms 
and legal frameworks in which these forms of monopoly were kept at bay, right? Especially in the production process, especially in global capitalism. So you had, for example, uh, something called the multi-fiber agreement. The multi-fiber agreement ensured that you, clothes and, and, and textiles were produced in the far-flung far flung corners of the globe. That meant that you didn't see actual that tendency of centralization happening in the in the manufacturing side. You actually saw that it was still remaining in all different parts of the world from 1975 to 2005. So that was a way, there, you know, these, these tendencies happen in the freest of markets. But as those markets, as those borders become more liberalized, these underlying logics or these kind of uh, laws that Marx talks about become more cemented, become more part and parcel of the kind of engine of, of how firms consolidate and merge and acquire and so on and so forth and centralize. So what happens really from 2005 is you see this application of this tendency to kind of go more into effect. So 2005, you have the phase out of the multi-fiber agreement, which means that you, it basically means that these sectors become com- entirely unregulated as they become entirely unregulated. I mean, they were semi-regulated. The multi-fiber agreement basically was negotiated by trade unions in the global north. In 1975, to decrease the possibility of firms that were producing clothes in the global north, in like the east end of London, or you know, in uh, parts of, uh, of the U.S., like New York and California and 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 southern states, that were producing textiles, that were producing garments, to reduce the profits of these firms, to lower their drive to outsource. Right? It didn't really do that. It limited it to a few years, but it didn't really do that. What what these firms did was basically start producing in in various different countries because there was there was a regulation on the number of of clothes that could be produced in one place in the global south and be sold to one country in the global north so it was a form of it was a form of light regulation basically what that did was it kept like i said the the the, the tendency of monopoly at the production side not at the buyer side but at the production side at bay it it halted it quite a, a little bit in 2005 you had the phase out what happens immediately following the phase out is all of a sudden all many of these firms like Maquilas and other places that were producing it in Mexico, Central America, and so on and so forth, that were more expensive, more pricey to produce a shoe or a shirt or a sock or a tie, start producing, you know, a majority of global export processing clothes to the advanced capitalist world were being produced in a few provinces in the southeast corner of China, in the, in the Pearl River Delta region. And so they start moving enormous amount of production to a handful of labor-rich countries. So we're talking about, you know, China, Bangladesh, Turkey to some extent, Vietnam as well, India as well. Anyway, so as it moves from all of these different little countries to these labor-rich countries with, you know, not just that they were labor-rich, of course, but they also had built-up economies. They had kind of, um, they had the kind of optimum conditions for capitalist accumulation and manufacturing. You had a compliant state. In the case of China, you had an authoritarian labor regime in which, you know, you didn't have independent trade unions really, and strikes were ostensibly illegal. I mean, they are actually illegal unless they're, I mean, even in, in Vietnam, to, to some extent, they're illegal, but the laws are a little bit different there. But yeah, I mean, you had, it, there were really optimum conditions for these firms. And so all of a sudden they, you know, various firms, you know, Korean firms, Taiwanese firms start contracting in the Pearl River Delta region. And so as that consolidation happens in fewer and fewer regions, what ends up happening is that you have um, fewer and fewer firms starting to produce in these areas. And so 
a case in point that I, one of the cases I kind of look at, I mean, I look at a number of cases, but I, one of the cases I look at in the book is the case of Hugh Wen. Hugh Wen is a Taiwanese shoe producer who three decades ago was one of hundreds of firms. Uh, but for any number of reasons, they begin to consolidate. And as they start consolidating, it really starts accelerating under um, the end of the MFA. All of a sudden, these firms, which, again, were quite small under slightly regulated systems, start becoming more and more consolidated. And that, again, begins to change the relationship, not only with the buyers, and in this case, Nike, Adidas, and Timberland, and so on and so forth, but it also, crucially, and I think crucially in, in terms of our interests as Marxists, but also the interest of the book, is it changes the possibility for workers to make demands. So your book focuses on the textile sector and what you call sweatshops. So can you tell us what sweatshops are and why they've proven so enduring? So typically in the book and and also in general, I would say that it's in the manufacturing sector and it's a place with very low bargaining power, extremely low bargaining power. So it's like, but it's also like it it carries a lot of other, other kind of aesthetic and other kind of things that evocative imagery when people think about it. But it, it, to simplify it, that's what it would be. But it's the sweatshop in these sectors are sectors that are low value, low technology, vertically disintegrated. That means that the, the production side is fundamentally different from the buyer side. So like, let's say you walk into a shop and buy a pair of Nikes. Very little of the production process will have been will have been owned by Nike. Almost none of it will be. That relationship, that vertical disintegration is crucial to the durability of the sweatshop. And it's typically what you'd call buyer driven. So it's like in certain sectors, toys or furniture or shoes or or clothes, buyer driven means that it's the people that the the, the kind of deciders of 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 the sector, the people that are the sort of shot callers of the sector are the people who are the buyers, the sort of brands or retailers. So that those are the essential elements of the sweatshop. And the durability of these sectors and the kind of the, the violence that we've seen in it in terms of factory fires year in, year out, at least until 2013, 2014, factory collapses, and also the kind of abysmal wages are contingent on these essential factors, that you're able to keep them low value, which means that you have very little profits at the point of production, and low technology and this vertical disintegration. So none of these firms are ever, production firms are ever able to escape the orbit of low value, right? And so they're never able to sort of invest in labor-saving technology. So let's say you take two pictures of the auto sector separated by 100 years and the garment sector separated by 100 years. If you look at the auto sector, it'll be, you know, 100 years ago, you have, you'll see an image of like sort of Men putting together a, a car in a, a fairly basic assembly line. Whereas now, if you look at an image, it's basically all te- te- technology, very few people in a factory. And if you look at the garment sector, it hasn't really budged. You know, you have 100 years in which it's still women crouching over sewing machines. And the reason for that is precisely because of these fundamental dynamics of the sector like vertical disintegration, where these firms can never generate enough capital to invest in R&D and invest in various different forms of technology. So what that means is that you've had low barriers to entry. Low barriers to entry basically means, and this goes back to the question of, of monopoly, it's that if you have 
an aeronautics firm. Aeronautics firms producing planes or whatever are hugely monopolistic. Why are they hugely monopolistic? Because they have very large barriers to entry. Barriers to entry, let's say you're a capitalist in Cambodia or in India, and you want to become a bigger capitalist. You're kind of a domestic bourgeoisie and you're trying to become a bigger capitalist or whatever. And you want to sell products for a foreign market because you're like, oh, there's all these people desperate for work who've been dispossessed for their means of subsistence. And I want to use them, exploit them to produce goods for Western markets and for Western buyers. If you open up an aeronautics plant, that'll cost you maybe a, a billion pounds. If you want to open up a, an auto plant because of the technology that you need and because of how much investment you'd have, to, it might cost you a hundred million. If you want to open up a garment factory, a garment factory in the outskirts of a town, 3,000 employees that's export oriented, it may cost you a million pounds. What that means is that you have capitalists everywhere who are opening up garment factories everywhere. Or, you know, so again, this in terms of the relationship between these suppliers and buyers, it means that you have potentially thousands and thousands of suppliers and very few buyers who are monopolistic who are able to put downward pressure on them and capture more value right? These buyers are able to capture more value. One of the examples I often use for, to, to kind of illustrate this is like, it, you know, the idea of monopsony comes from, it comes from lots of different things, but it primarily comes from labor market monopsony, right? So let's say, um, you know, Grace is a, an employer and I'm an employee, but I'm competing with, you know, hundreds of other com- employees as a reserve army of labor for a job that she might Want, want me to do and she, in the in the universe that I've produced here she's the only capitalist and there's only one job I will be fighting like crazy in order to get that job so I can feed my family or whatever and so what that means is that she has an enormous amount of monopol- monopsonistic power right she can determine things very much because you know we're competing and it's an sort of uneven relationship whereas if there's just you know myself and another person competing for the job she has much less monopsony power. So that's the similar relationship here. And what I'm trying to sort of draw out is that as these firms become more monopolistic because of this underlying logic of competition that moves us towards centralization and because of deregulation, deregulation, which opened up the possibility for these firms to become more increasingly, increasingly consolidated, historically, because of forms of regulation, those put limits on the monopsonistic power because it put limits on the, these kind of underlying logics of competition that leads us towards monopoly, which decreases the monopsony. So you, the way that you look, should look at monopoly and monopsony in some ways as they should be seen as in competition with one another. The greater the monopsonistic relationship, the smaller the monopoly power of the producers, right? The greater the monopoly power of the producers typically means less and less monopsonistic power to the buyers who are also monopolistic. If you can, if you it can follow my drift there a little bit, but if you, mm, you know, it yeah. basically means that, um, you know, as these firms following the MFA, following the end of this global agreement, as that form of limited regulation ended and monopoly starts setting in, what that means is that now you're a capitalist in Cambodia, that same capitalist in Cambodia or India, whereas 30 years or 20 years ago, it might cost you, 1 million pounds to open up a export oriented footwear producer. Now it might cost you 2 million. So as that costs you 2 million, why does it cost you 2 million? Because all of a sudden you've had this consolidation, that consolidation of firms like Hu Yen, who've been able to invest in labor saving technology and other things and raise slightly raise the barriers to entry by raising those barriers to entry. They're now integrating vertically, integrating horizontally, 
So increasing their monopoly power vis-a-vis other competitors, right? That's what monopoly is. It's vis-a-vis other competitors who are producing similar products. So as they're expanding, they're still reinforcing their own monopolistic relationship to the market, to the product that's being produced and to the, to the market. So as they're increasing barriers to entry, it means that it costs more for these, comp- these various capitalists who are trying to get into the market to remain competitive, but also even enter into the field. So these barriers to entry actually then decrease the possibility for increasing the monopsonistic relationship between buyers like Adidas and Nike and others vis-a-vis the, the supply chain. So as you have forms of consolidation, it increases the power of these suppliers. And it's actually this kind of, it's almost like these firm, these large buyers are kind of producing in lots of ways their own grave diggers, right? So it, they move towards a more and more consolidated firms. Why? Because moving towards more and more consolidated firms is part of the logic of, 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 of competition as well. So if I'm producing the shoe or shirt, I'm going to go to the person who can produce it for the cheapest price, if I'm Nike or Adidas, obviously, with the quickest turnaround, with the most efficiency. So as I'm doing that, I'm actually rewarding firms that are becoming more and more consolidated, right? And as I'm rewarding those firms that are becoming more and more consolidated, I'm actually then cutting myself off from possibly cutting and running from these firms, you know? And it's actually increasing the liability. The entire purpose of outsourcing production was to decrease liability and decreasing liability in lots of ways was uh, not the entire purpose. A large, a, the sort of big purpose for doing it was decreasing liability because these because production in these sectors is tied to sort of ephemeral fashion trends and seasonality. There's high levels of risk and there's high levels of volatility and variability. So if you're producing from a, a some, you're contracting to produce from some you know manufacturer in the global south or wherever, you want to be able to, in some ways to to be flexible, to be able to cut and run and go to another firm. As they're rewarding these firms, firms like Hu Yan and others, they're now disinvesting from the possibility of other firms popping up and even other firms coming into the market because of barriers to entry. So the thing is with the garment and footwear sector, what's interesting about these sectors is that they're what you call, what you call starter sectors. So they're, they're the first to come and the first to go in the production process, which means that they kind of, they're kind of almost like canaries in the coal mine or like you know, barometers or something to, to, to where capitalism's going. And so they allow us to see what, what's going on. So for example, right now we see that garment factories are kind of opening up in Ethiopia. So that sort of in some ways indicates to us, okay, maybe this is the new terrain for certain forms of development. And because what that leads to is certain forms of built up infrastructure that then allows for other capitalists to come in and and it leads, it's a kind of early sign of, of capitalist development. But basically what that, um, what it is, is that these firms within the sector, there's kind of more valorizable, I would say, sections of it. So like, for example, I use footwear now, but also denim is another example. Denim, because it's more uh, potentially technologically advanced, because there's a more advanced process to it than it is. It's also not really bogged down by things like seasonality and ephemeral fashion trends. And also sort of like men's undergarments. So I focus kind of on these more valorizable sections. It's kind of almost like a a kind of a very ideal type. You use the more extreme examples to indicate greater changes within the sector. So if you look at these parts that become more valorizable or more um, consolidated. So in India, I look at Arvind. In Honduras, I look at a subsidiary of Berkshire Hathaway, Russell um, Fruit Loom, which is a and their subsidiary, Russell Athletic. And so they, these three firms are the kind of three primary case studies. But what they show us is that actually 
when workers have tried to organize in these sectors, the reason why they every time everywhere workers try to they do try to organize when you're being exploited enough, workers tend to be like, okay, what is how can we make demands on our our employer? And they do that through the self organization and through typically through either recognized or unrecognized trade unions or industrial action or any number of tactics that are used. Every time that happens, and this is the history of the of the garment sector, especially under globalized capital. The producers simply cut and run. They do not. They stop producing there and they go somewhere else because there's no there's nothing holding them to that to those firms, right? And there's a myriad of other places they can choose from or firms they can choose from. So what happens is when you have firms like Huyen or Arvind or uh, Fruit of the Loom that are more and more consolidated, it becomes increasingly difficult and onerous for these firms to cut and run. Uh, what happened, for example, in uh, Hu Yen in 2014 is that you had 50,000 workers going in on strike over social insurance. And I mean, mind you, at the time, one in six casual and sports shoes in the world were being produced at a Hu Yen facility. And this was their largest Hu Yen, Hu Yen facility. This is the Taiwanese firm. And what happens there, and this was the largest strike of a private sector employer in Chinese history. And what happens there is pretty unprecedented. You know, you have... Nike and Adidas for a short period of time producing in other places for these two weeks. And then they immediately come back to uh, Hu Yen facilities to produce because no one can produce at the, at the rates that Hu Yen was producing and no one can produce with the kind of turnaround times that Hu Yen was producing. And in, you know, in, in, in interviews afterwards, you had executives at Nike and Adidas and other places being like, no, no, of course we'd never cut and run. Well, it's because they can't they can't cut and run. You know, it's in some ways it's kind of the buyer driven dynamic is that Huyen needs Nike almost as much as Nike needs Huyen, right? I'm not saying they're they're like for like, but they, you know they they it's almost the same, right? So similar thing happens with Arvind, and you know another thing that's indicative of this is that when they went on strike, this is in 2014, it cost them 27 million dollars in in um, Paying out. I mean, they, the workers didn't win all like many of their demands, but they won a lot of concessions. Right? You can call them concessions. Some people could call them gains. And then it cost the firm thirty-one million. The strike alone cost thirty-one million. And then you saw, you know, you saw within a, a few months, neighboring province. This was in uh, Guangzhou, but in a neighboring province, Shenzhen, the same supplier, same uh, producer under the same demands went on strike. They also won their demands, many of their demands. And then in Vietnam, the largest strike in Vietnamese history of a private sector employer was at a Hu Yen facility on the same demands of social insurance. And they won all their demands, but those were demands put on the state. And so what that tells us is that not only do you see a form of consolidation happening from above, when that consolidation happens, when that centralization happens, in many respects, it makes it easier for workers to make, to draw those links between each, between struggle. Bargaining power is really just the disruptive power of workers. What is your disruptive potential, right? If you're, if you're a crane operator in a dock, your disruptive potential is much, much greater than if you're a crane operator at some middle of nowhere Amazon warehouse, I don't know, um, or just any warehouse. So if you're, you know, so if you're a, a dis if your disruptive potential at a firm like Hu Yen, because it's so integral and central to the production process and so integral to the to the profits of these large firms who are already monopolistic firms, your bargaining power is far, far greater than if you're producing for some domestic shoe producer in the, somewhere, you know? They have been able to create a production process that limits the ability for workers to make any bargaining at the point of production. 
You've um, anticipated my next question, which was going to be about this question of bargaining power. I'm wondering, listening to you talk about that, whether or not state policy plays a significant role in shaping what you call the disruptive potential of these workers in the textile sector. Or, you know, as you mentioned, the fact that there have been all these strikes in China where workers have kind of won so many of their demands, despite the fact that there's this quite, you know, authoritarian stance with regards to the labor movement, should actually either state policy is less important or actually that state policy with regards to the labor movement reflects the power of the labor movement itself rather than being an explanatory factor as we might think about it you know when we're talking about the power of the labor movement in say the global north where a lot of it comes down to policy and legislative change and that sort of thing well there's a two parts i mean there's a good very good question i mean i think it's there's two kind of parts to this question i guess it's like what is policy policy i guess in terms of how it affects workers in 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 the positive in terms of our bargaining power in terms of workers bargaining power is obviously my reading of history is that it's a kind of class compromise that even states like China, which is a, you know, a kind of whatever you may think of the state or whatever political ideological drive of that, of that state, it's, they were, they, you know, in 2010, for, for example, passed a collective bargaining law, that collective bargaining law was very much, it was attempting to harness and restrict and militate against militancy, I think. And the evidence is for that is pretty overwhelming. I mean, it, it, it was a response to the Honda worker strike. And, you know, this is what Burroway, when he writes about manufacturing consent, but also in other, other texts, he's talking about in the U.S. how collective bargaining and these laws were used. I mean, they're very effective and important tools in people bargaining and people making, you know, and having grievance procedures and having some form of power at the workplace. No denying that. But the purpose for them, the purpose for passing them was actually both wins for workers who were organizing, but also a way to militate against militancy. I mean, you had basically 50,000 spontaneous strikes per year in some years uh, in China uh, that were wildcat strikes. I mean, that isn't good for the state and that's not good for for capital and that's not good for ongoing stability of the system. So yeah, you had these laws that were being passed in these places. You had wage increases in minimum wage increases passing across China really like fivefold increases since 2000, you know, 13.5% per annum real turn wage increases from, you know, 2007 to 2015. You know, that's unprecedented. But it's also because the Chinese state both was responding to the subjective agency of the working class, but also because the Chinese state was like, you know what, we poverty wages in the Peru Delta region isn't really benefiting us anymore. They were trying to move it more into mainland China, but also trying to get increasingly more capital intensive and technologically advanced investment in these in these regions. So that's the kind of response of the state. Sure, uh, you can have a response of the state that helps us, you know, potentially workers to organize more effectively, but also have better wages, right? But the second point is that different forms of regulation. You have an authoritarian state labor regime in China. And then you have a kind of um, what you call like a marketplace uh, labor regime in in places like uh, Bangladesh, where the such low margins means that the state doesn't even apply any of their own regulation. They have no incentive to. You have you know basically seventy eight percent of the of, of Bangladesh's uh, foreign direct investment directly tied to one sector. It's like a one trick pony. I mean if prices went up there and the garment sector collapsed, it would make, it just, it's not, it's not something that they can really risk doing. Um, And I'm not, that's not a defensive 
Bangladesh continuing to have abysmal wages and no application of their own reg- uh, regulations and, and rules. But it means that regardless of whatever regulation they do, none of it gets applied. I mean, they had this thing after, after the Rana Plaza collapse called the Accord, where you had a number of different rules that were being applied and, um, and, and they were trying to enforce these rules, but it collapsed. It collapsed under the weight of its own contradictions because the reason people contract and produce in Bangladesh is because it's so cheap to produce there. If you increase the price of producing there, they will no longer produce there. This is the fundamental problem. I mean, these are amongst one of the main problems with global capitalism, right? Is that how do you go about regulating a system? How do you go about ensuring that these contractors continue to produce in these areas and not lead to things like Rana Plaza? And so if you look at Latin America, to a large extent, you have seen an absence of state regulation. Many of these firms have their own security outfits, you know, like, and and they enforce in Colombia, for example, in Honduras, they enforce labor discipline through violence. And so I think in these sectors, by and large, we haven't seen regulation have any effect, any positive effect. I mean, I'll give you an example. Sri Lanka was one of the first countries in the world, in South Asia to have export processing zone in 1976. So it becomes quite developed fairly quickly. And up until the point that in the 90s, you had a a political party there that wins off the back of saying, we're going to increase wages in the export processing zones, which are almost entirely garments. And you have export processing dotting the entire country. I mean, at that point, obviously not the north, but across the south and the east of the country and the central part of the country. So they come in and within a week, they rescind everything because it was well-documented that after winning the political party, it was well-documented that, you know, not only the domestic bourgeoisie, but parts of the, the, the transnational bourgeoisie had had their various handlers or meet with the political party and say, if you did this, you will pauperize your country. So it was a threat, but it was also, it was something that was based very much in reality. Um, so it's a, it's a very difficult, with state regulation, at least in manufacturing, it's very difficult to see examples in which it's been done effectively and not just responding as a mechanism to control labor militancy or to try and um, to ensure the ongoing durability and stability of the system. During the pandemic, we've seen a load of clothes retailers in the global north go under and often cancel their orders to supplier in the global south, which for a while was causing complete havoc, as you were talking about at the time. What do you think is going to be the long-term impact of the pandemic on the textile sector throughout the supply chain? So yes, you're right. There were a number of you know, large orders. The way that orders work is that you firms put in large orders and then the producers fit kind of fit the bill, like, you know, produce it on debt and then get paid back once the once the orders come through. So they had produced these and a lot of these manufacturers were going under and workers, tens of thousands of workers were not paid. But what ended up happening is that you had certain employers associations uh, like the Bangladesh Employers Association, uh, like the Cambodian uh, uh, Employers Association, the Korean one as well, where uh, they were able to assert quite a bit of power. Um, they said, if you do not pay this off, you're, you're blacklisted. And any of subsidiaries black, blacklisted from producing here. Now, we don't know exactly how much power they would have to do that. I think they would have power to do that. And the fact that they were asserting themselves that in that way reveals in lots of ways the uh, dynamics within production and global capitalism. You know, George Lukash in History and Class Consciousness 
says that only in moments of crisis, that in moments of crisis, capitalism reveals itself in its totality. It's that these moments of crisis, like the COVID crisis, but typically like, you know, capitalist crisis, reveals to us the kinds of ways and the mechanics that are going on and the changes that are occurring. So in, in these sectors, what we saw is that kind of an unprecedented assertion by these employers associations against a, a, in a sector where they were historically very, very dependent and reliant on these buyers, right? And what that speaks to is a certain kind of consolidation in a handful of countries, labor-rich countries. But the second point it speaks to is also that, or at least I want to critique, is that it's, again, not an automatic relationship. It doesn't mean relationship. It doesn't mean, you know, Rana, who was the owner of Rana Plaza, was a part of the Bangladeshi Employers Association. You know, this Sanal Rana, it's not, it's not that these employers associations care at all about the about their workers. You know, it's that they have a greater bargaining power. If they have greater bargaining power in the supply chain, vis-a-vis the buyers, that does change the possibility for workers to make those demands. And so in lots of ways, that indicates to us the direction of, of travel, of in, in particularly these sectors, but I would say industrial capitalism more generally. And that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Ashok, for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. Thanks for having me. 